I've been listening to Crazy Love by Michael Buble for a decade. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It, the birthday episode. Woo! and kittens that's, that's somebody else's intro isn't it yeah <laughs> that's tiger king we're not doing that is that what that is oh <laughs> kind of it's, it's carol baskin I, I never watched that you never well you missed out i yeah it was one of the things that was super popular i was like oh, i should watch that because everybody's watching it and then i just never did but anyway welcome 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 back to another episode of spin it the record raking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music that's this i'm today your special host connor and with me, my special co-host who's in the passenger seat this week, James. Hi, it's me. I don't have a catchphrase now, either. I've, I'm left in the boat that you're often left in. Ha ha, that's right. No catchphrase for you. No, it's been a whole year. You'd think I'd have one by now. <laughs> you know, enough of this. I know I did this to you, but no. <laughs> <laughs> no when to not, as you told the mixtaper one time. No when to not. And as we said at the top of the episode, it's our birthday, technically. This is episode 52, the last episode of the year. We did do an episode zero, so you can technically say this is also the one-year anniversary, depending on how you look at it. It's a mess. Yeah. Well, do you count your zero with birthday as a birthday? Good. If so, I got a whole year's worth of presents I didn't get. <laughs> yeah, what the heck? <laughs> Come on, mom. <laughs> 52 weeks, 52 episodes is pretty good. We've made it through thick and thin. Yeah, we made it a whole year without missing a Friday. You might not realize, audience, because we haven't missed a Friday. Well, we had some close calls. Yeah, there was a couple uh, Friday afternoon publishings, um... One Friday night publishing because our episode got wiped. It got deleted halfway through the edit. At the start over. I, I edited the entire thing in on Friday because our entire edit got wiped. It was wild, but we made yeah. it. We, we couldn't have done it without you. So thanks and happy birthday to you and to us. To all of you that have been with us since day zero. But mostly to us. <laughs> mostly to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this week. We're talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Michael Buble. Michael Buble. I can't believe that you've been listening to this for a decade. Uh, about, yeah. For someone who doesn't listen to albums, that's quite a statistic. So one of the like first and only CDs I had in my car when I got my license was this album. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Yeah, okay, I get it now. Yeah, I found Michael Buble sometime when we were in high school. And this and his 2005 album, It's Time, were like two of my favorite albums to listen to. And so I almost went with It's Time instead of Crazy Love. But uh, here we are doing Crazy Love instead. It was close. Yeah. It was not time. <laughs> it was. It really was hard to pick. Like, I was texting people being like, which one should I pick? Like, I couldn't decide because I liked them both equally. Fair. Very fair. I know some Michael Buble singles. I've heard some other ones like uh, You and I and Everything and obviously the big ones like some of them on this album. And, and I do already have one Michael Buble album on the ranking list. Oh? I listened to it in early 2020, I believe. And it is... Is it To Be Loved? It's To Be Loved. How does... How did it rank sneak preview? Well, to be loved, sneak preview, it was as an album a little disappointing to me. Uh oh. It scored a 75.1 and it's ranked number 490. Not a great sign. Not a great, not off to a great start. Um, to be fair, actually, honestly, that one's probably, I'm looking at the set list. 
other than it's a beautiful day and come dance with me, there's not much on it to be super jazzed about. Jazz, ha. Huh? Yeah, and so your MO with this episode, this being your third pick, was to try and end year one. On a good note. <laughs> by me giving this album a score that gets it where? In my top 100? Top 100. So, okay. considering another album of his hit 400s, I got a long way to climb. 490. Yeah, got a long there. way to climb. Oh, no. Let's just put the perspective here right now. The album at number 100 is an 89.3. If you can top an 89.3, you'll make it. Oh, boy. Got my work cut out for me, audience. You sure do. But I'm excited. But I think this album has a pretty good shot. Let's talk about it. And let's talk about Buble himself. Let's do it. I would also would like to interject. When we were texting about this album in this episode, you kept saying, oh, I think the Bubbly album will be great. The Bubbly this, the Bubbly that. <laughs> my, like, she got a lot of Bubbly songs. My, and I was like, what are you talking about? Autocorrect got, did me dirty. It kept changing Buble to Bubbly and I didn't notice. <laughs> Tell me about Michael Bubbly. All right, Michael Bubbly. Michael Stephen Buble is a Canadian singer who got started in the early 2000s. Uh, he's had a he has actually a pretty interesting career. He got his start after an aide to the former Prime Minister Brian Mul- Mulroney saw Buble performing at a business party. A business party? Yeah. Well, that sounds like the lamest place to perform. Uh, but this is like the perfect kind of music, right? Jazz music is like exactly oh, yeah. what you want in the background of a business party. So apparently, he was not so in the background. Yeah, the aide gave a copy of Buble's self financed album he's one of those that did a self-financed album yeah i've had a couple and so they gave it to their boss mulroney who liked it so much he hired buble to sing in his daughter's wedding whoa so michael buble his first like big big gig was to play at the wedding of the daughter of the prime minister yeah that's huge i know at the wedding Buble was introduced to multi-Grammy award-winning producer and record executive David Foster. Yeah. David Foster, after some convincing, agreed to produce Buble's album if Buble could raise $500,000 to cover the production costs, which Buble successfully did. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) How did he raise $500,000? I actually don't know how he raised the money. I just know he did. I don't know if he took out a huge loan or like did fun. I don't know how he came up with the money, but he did. I don't. Hey, hi. I'm a jazz singer. I'd like a small loan of $500,000. What bank in their right mind? I don't know. But in the end, Foster ended up covering the cost of production under his label 143 Records or 143. I don't know how that record says itself. Is it 143, 143? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Well, you're the music guy. I thought maybe you'd have heard of them. Anyway, we're going to go with 143. Buble received the personal stamp of approval from Foster's friend, musician, and songwriter Paul Anka. Which, if you don't know who Paul Anka is, oh, you should. should. <laughs> His song "Put Your Head on My Shoulders" is high on my list of singles to bring to a future singles episode. Mm. I really like his "Put Your Head on My Shoulders" song. So yeah, Michael Bubbly stamp of appro- approval from Paul Anka. His self-titled debut came out in 2003 and hit the top 10 in Canada, the UK, and South Africa, and went number one in Australia. Other albums of his include 2005's "It's Time," which I mentioned. Uh, 2007's Call Me Irresponsible, 2009's Crazy Love, the one we're doing, 2011's Christmas album titled Christmas, which has been the number one selling Christmas album in Australia every year since it came out in 2011. Australia wow. loves that Wait, album. <laughs> every, every single year is the number one Christmas album? In Australia, yeah. 
for for like eleven years running. Well, yeah. ten years running. Uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, <laughs> incredible. Um, in fact, his Christmas songs are so popular that sometimes he's referred to as the King of Christmas. I believe it. Isn't that Santa Claus though? Christmas album, very popular. Uh, he also has 2013's "To Be Loved," which is the one you had already done. 2016's "Nobody But Me," and it's at that point that he kind of put his career on hold for a bit. Uh, his son was diagnosed with heptoblastoma. I think is how that's pronounced, and uh, he wanted to be there for his to support him through chemo and stuff like that. So he stopped all touring and stuff like that to focus on his family. Uh, luckily, though, his son did make a full recovery, so that's that's exciting news. Good. Um, in 2018, though, he came back uh, bigger than ever with the album Love, and then his most recent release, Higher, just came out in January of 22, which I also thought about doing because it's so recent. But I wanted to go with the nostalgia of the one that really got me started into him. Uh, he's been nominated for 54 awards, winning 19 of them, including the Juno Awards Album of the Year for It's Time 2006, Single of the Year for Home in 2006, the American Music Awards Favorite Adult Contemporary Artist, uh, Grammy Awards Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album for 2014's To Be Loved, and then many more awards. This week, talking about Crazy Love, as I've said multiple times, it's his fourth studio album, came out in 2009. It topped the Billboard 200 after only three days of sales, with 132,000 copies sold. That's wild. It spent two weeks at number one, and then in Australia, it debuted at number one and stayed there for six weeks. So again, Australia loves Michael Bublé. No doubt. <laughs> it has since been certified two times platinum in the US, five times platinum in Australia, ten times platinum in the UK, and 15 times platinum in Ireland. It ended on the 2010 to 2019 decade end chart that Billboard does at number 193, which I also think is impressive because it came out not in that decade and was still on the top 200 chart at the end of the next decade. Wow. It won a Grammy for Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album, a Juno Awards Album of the Year, Song of the Year, and Pop Album of the Year. And all around, it's just a great album. Got my stamp of approval. And that's the biggest award it can win. That's the, that's the biggest award it can win. <laughs> so says me. And yeah, I guess that's all I got to say about it until we get more into the songs themselves. So I think it's time we get the mixtape out here for his final. It's actually worked out. We've done one round of Factor Spin where he's gone up against me in each of the three seasons of Fact and Spin so far. I guess so. <laughs> so let's see how we do this week. I don't think he loves playing against you. Let's get him on out here. Let's do it. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. Coming to play Factor Spin about Michael Bubbly. Oh boy, that's what you're going to call him all episode, huh? It's not, no. Michael oh, okay. Bublay. Bublay. <laughs> There's an accent on it. There is. So you, you know a lot about Michael Bublé. Yeah, you know, you know, you've probably heard this album played throughout the apartment from time to time, Mr. Mixpaper. A lot, but that doesn't mean you know things about him. Yeah, that's true. I'm afraid that you'll know every single fact that I tell you. <laughs> You'll go four for four because you've heard all of these facts before. Oh, we'll find out, won't we? Yeah, I guess we will. First up, I want you to know that Michael Bublé... Well, I, I don't want you to know, but I want to inform you if you don't know. <laughs> Michael Bublé owns a hockey team. Owns a hockey team. Okay. That's that's right. Michael Bublé owns a hockey team. Now, is this a Canadian hockey team? Since he is a Canadian? Sure is. Yeah. So it's a true hockey team. Okay, so what team does he own? Yeah, well, he owns the Vancouver Giants, a team in the Western Hockey League. Okay. Does Vancouver have more than one hockey team? Well... Because I know there's the Vancouver Canucks, right? The, like, most famous Canadian hockey team ever. Well, the Montreal Canadiens would disagree. And so no, would the Toronto Maple Leafs. The name, so would... the name Canucks is, like, 
hilarious. So it's the, they're the most popular. Sure. Well, yes, that's Vancouver's NHL team, but this is this is the Western Hockey League. It's a couple levels below professional. Gotcha, gotcha. The team has been around, though, since 2001, and it's produced some NHL players like Evander Kane, Milan Lucic, and Brendan Gallagher. When did he get this ownership? Well, in 2008, he became a minority owner of the team alongside hockey legend Gordie Howe and former NHL coach Pat Quinn. Interesting. What's what's their what's their mascot? Their mascot. Well, they're the Vancouver Giants, so I I would guess their mascot is something giant, maybe a giant. Something big, yeah. But what? I, I don't know. What if it's a giant like ant? Oh, a giant ant. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> <laughs> All the things I could have said. <laughs> yeah, listen, I'm just here. You're sounding like James this week, mixtaper, making the bad puns. Uh, yeah. I just want to make you feel, you know, like you're in your element. Gotcha. Uh, I'm a little worried about this fact. I don't know this, if this is true. Yeah. Oh, great. That's that's good. I'm, I'm a little reassured. I'm a little worried. I know, you know, you're a big fan of hockey yourself. I am. Well, so is Michael Bublé. Uh, and I know that Canada's, like, biggest and favorite sport is hockey. And with him being Canadian, I'm afraid you've leaned into that. No, I mean, well, yes, but also, <laughs> it's just true. He's a big hockey fan, lifelong. Mm. You, you probably know that he wanted to be a singer from age two. Yeah. But he actually did an interview with the NHL after he got this team. And he said in the interview, I wanted so bad to be a hockey player. If I was any good at hockey, I probably wouldn't be singing right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, he also loved that his own name was very similar to the 80s hockey player Yuri Bubla. <laughs> you see, I'm, I'm, I'm believing literally every detail you're giving me, except the fact that he owns the team. Like, I'm afraid that this is just, like, all information that's out there. Like, he's talked about his love of hockey and all mm. this stuff, and then you've just now taken all that, assigned it to he also owns the team. But I think I'm going to lock in fact. You're locking in fact, huh? Yep. Could I persuade you not to? Uh, definitely not now <laughs> that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, shoot. This is a fact. Michael Buble is a partial owner of the Vancouver Giants. Nice. And he actually considers it, le- legitimately considers it his most prestigious accomplishment. Yes, he said that after he's won Grammys. Interesting. Yeah, he requests hockey pucks from every arena that he performs in on tours. All right, well, that's one and done, right? We're done for the week. One perfect week. No, uh, we're not done. <laughs> not done for the week. I, I still have another chance. Darn. To, to not just suck against you. <laughs> I'm really trying. I think we're off to a stronger start, and I'm trying to give you less. You'll notice that I made you ask more questions. Yeah, and yeah, In the past, smart. I've just told you like a story and that's been not effective so yeah we're mixing it up you're getting better at the game Mm -hmm. my next fact for you is that michael buble is named after a celebrity oh after the famous celebrity bubbly no no not after bubbly (laughs) oh Uh, who's he who is he supposedly named after you said it yourself michael stephen buble is named after none other than steven spielberg okay so his middle name comes from somebody famous Yes. Okay, why? Well... I'm afraid of your answer here. No. So, Jaws, as you know, had just come out in June of 1975, and Michael came out in September of the same year. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. His father, Lewis, is a lifelong fisherman. Big fan. Big fan of Jaws? 
As a fisherman, that feels backwards. <laughs> yeah, I know. It does. But that's exactly why he liked it, I think, because it was something that he was familiar with. Mm. And so they were like, man, I really like this movie. It relates to me in a way other movies don't. I'm going to name my son's middle name after the director. Well, it's not just that movie. Tell me more. How, what else is it? Michael and his family loved a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. They're kind of a cinephile family. This is the part I was afraid of because... As we'll talk about as we get into the yes, song analysis, Michael Bublé is very big in the movies, and that has a big impact on some of the song choices he chooses to cover. Absolutely. And so I was afraid that that's where this was going. Well, maybe you've seen his music video for I'll Never Not Love You, which mm-hmm. features him recreating scenes from iconic movies. Mm-hmm. His sister, Crystal, is an actress. Okay. It runs in the family. So, yeah, they're big into it. Mm. I'm struggling with this one. This is one of those that I'm afraid you're trying to pull the old reversal on me. What is the old reversal? I've played this against you three times. Where the thing is so believable and it's super grounded in fact, and you knew I would know it was super grounded in fact. If you know anything about Michael Buble, you'd know that detail. I don't know anything about Michael Buble. And so um, you're like banking off of me just assuming it's true because of that? But like, why the middle name? Why... Like, well, Buble was already on the table. That was already the last name. Why not? Yeah, well, right. But why not the first name? Why not call him Stephen Buble? Beats me. I got a reputation to hold up here. Oh, man. There's like way more pressure on me because like you, if you do bad, that's just part of the course. If I do bad, it's like <laughs> wow, you finally, okay. it's, it's like you finally triumphed. You know, there's a lot more pressure on me to maintain. The, oh, the bar's too high. Yeah. It, well, it's like uh, Machine Gun Kelly said, you know, tickets to my downfall, you know, you're rooting against the audience is like rooting against me now. <laughs> What a connection. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> I'm going to go with spin on this one. You're going with spin, really? Yep. What what puts you over the edge? It's too believable. This You're calling this a spin because it's too believable? Yep. It's one of those sneaky ones where it's like, oh yeah, this is absolutely true, but it's really not. This is disgusting. This is a spin. It's not <laughs> true. It's not true. And everything about it is pretty true. He does love movies. His sister's an actress. His father was a fisher. It's just... That's it. I love it. Yeah. All right. The worst I can do is 50-50. Pressure's off. That's <laughs> not the worst you could have done, which is a shame. Well, so uh, here's an interesting one for you. Okay. This one actually reminds me a little bit of the Weezer pigeon racing fact. Uh, <laughs> Gosh, here we go. Uh-huh. Michael Buble was almost a competitive jump roper. Rope jumper. <laughs> what? I, I couldn't <laughs> figure out what the correct syntax is. He jumped rope. Okay. Yeah. When did he almost do this? Well, it was when he was in grade school. He was big into it. And his sixth grade gym teacher noticed how much he loved it and started looking into options for him since he didn't really take much of an interest in the other sports. They have competitive jump roping in elementary school. As a matter of fact, well, no, it's not in the elementary school. But as a sport, it began in 1974 with international competitions kind of kicking up shortly after that. Hmm, okay. And so he was really into jump roping because he wasn't, he sucked at all other sports. Yeah, well, he just, that wasn't his thing, you know? Right. And so, like, how into it did he get? Pretty into it. I mean, he was, what, 12, about to be 13, which was the first year that he would be eligible for the competition. Okay. For like a junior version. And uh, he applied and was getting his routine ready. He was he was set to go. And the, the actual British Columbia leg of the tournament happened in Vancouver, where he's from. So he was close. Okay. And so did he? You said you keep saying he almost did. So like, why didn't he? Yeah. Well, uh, disaster struck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
he was jumping rope and he got a little uh, too fancy with one of his tricks and he sprained his ankle. What? <laughs> I never said that he was good at it. I said that he liked it. <laughs> so that's it's unfortunate. Got but too fancy and sprung an ankle. Couldn't do it anymore, huh? He, no, okay. he couldn't. Sprains the ankle and then he just he's like, I'm done. You know, lifelong injury. I can never return to the sport. <laughs> no, I'm glad you asked. It was too close to the actual competition for him to heal up in time. Okay. He didn't make it when he was 13. Okay. And that, the, so the competition was happening every other year, right? Okay, so it's an every other year sport, and there's right. one competition every other year. Yes. What is this? What? <laughs> I promise. I, somebody, somebody out there in the world wrote a master's thesis on jump roping that I found, and it helped me so much when I was trying to figure out what the heck this fact was about. So shout out to Weird. you because I may be the only person that's ever benefited from your master's thesis. <laughs> wow, that's some ax- that's some like backhanded shade thrown at thrown at that master's thesis person. Well, so so when he was fifteen and the competition would have been happening again, right? Because it's every other year. Okay, math checks out. Yeah, there was turmoil in the jump rope world. Yeah, I kid you not. This is what <laughs> went down. The International Rope Skipping Organization had to split in two. One remained the International Rope Skipping Organization, and they focused on stunts and gymnastics, really technical stuff. And then the other branch was the World Rope Skipping Federation, and they focused on exercise and aesthetic jumping. So all this restructuring into two organizations meant they had to withhold the competition for another year, at which point Michael was 16, and we'll see in a minute why he was a little busy at 16 and couldn't get back into jump roping. Fear not, though. The dispute's over, and these two organizations remerged under a single umbrella, the International Jump Rope Union, in 2018. Oh, wow, in 2018. It took them a while. It took them a while, yeah. What an adventure that fact was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. I don't know what to make of this fact. I figured you wouldn't. I was pretty happy when I came across it. This is this is amazing. I can't believe this isn't what you saved for the end. This would have been a great final ramp. Well... Uh, we've got a great final ramp on the way. Oh, gosh. I think you're pulling a classic mixtaper move where you discovered this master's thesis somehow and was reading it and wanted to talk about it on the podcast. No. So I think I'm saying, I know you're going to say no. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, what, no but just, like, like, oh, you got me. <laughs> Darn it. No, I mean, actually. Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to say this is a spin. Okay, well, <laughs> it's a spin. <laughs> It's a great spin. It's a great spin. Uh, most of this was true, right? Please tell me all this drama-worthy story about the jump roping organizations is true. Well, the dates are wrong, but the facts about the jump roping organizations are true. Okay, so when did this all actually happen? They actually split in the 90s. Um, I just, I knew you wouldn't know that. And I actually didn't find the thesis until after I made up this fact. So you were just like, you just made up the idea of Michael Bublé being a jump roper and then did research to support it and found this yeah i said i bet he jump roped all right that, <laughs> exactly i like it I, it was hard to find there's not a lot of information about the history of competitive jump roping all right three for four three for four i i don't love that hit me with that last one we all know that michael buble has some great pipes yeah but did you know that it was pipes that started his career uh go on that's what i'm telling you pipes his grandpa, Demetrio, was a plumber. So what, did like his first gig come from his grandfather? or like, How does grandfather's pipes relate to Michael Bublé's pipes? Well, grandpa used to trade plumbing services for gigs for Michael. Oh, 
Wait, so like, did he have like his own business? Like, was he just like a, you know, he wasn't like a plumber for like a business. He like was just an independent contractor plumber. Yeah. And uh, my understanding is that he would go into clubs and beg the owners to let Michael go and sing, even though he was just a kid. And all the owners would be like, absolutely not. We're a, we're a respectable establishment. And then he'd be like, I'll fix your toilet. Yeah, he said, I'd give you a new toilet if you let Michael sing. And they were like, well, shoot, can't turn that down. <laughs> yeah. So like, it wasn't like he was already at these places doing stuff, and he was just, like, while doing his work, convincing the owner to let his grandson perform. It was no, like he was going no. in. Making an offer. And rather than going in and, like, soliciting for work, like, let me fix your toilet for this great rate of however much it is to fix a toilet. He's like, and I'll do it for free if you let my son or my grandson sing. That's right. Interesting. It also probably worked out for, like, promotion for him, too, because he, if he did a good job with the toilet and, and Michael did a good job singing, you know, they'd use him for future plumbing work. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's probably something in there, you know. Probably. Marketing-wise. All right. Anything else you want to tell me about this before I lock in an answer? Mm, not before you lock in an answer. Okay. I, I wanted to, you know, give you the opportunity to tell your story and everything without letting you down, but uh, I know this one. <laughs> you can't, you cannot, cannot tell me that you knew the fourth fact to give yourself a perfect week. What? <laughs> I knew it. He's talked about it in several interviews about how his grandfather was like his first kind of supporter, you know? Yeah, well, it's 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 true. This is a fact. Yeah. And uh, that's what I was about to tell you after you locked it in is... Uh, that it was a fact. Would, <laughs> well, yeah, but he would go to his grandpa's, you know, and he really looked up to him. His grandpa really believed in his career. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that he would learn new music is his grandpa would say, Grandpa's an old man. He's going to die soon. Could you please just learn these three songs to me before I go? <laughs> and then every time he'd learn three songs, he's like, here's three more. <laughs> three more, yeah. And Grandpa would just hang on. So he learned, quote-unquote, thousands of songs that way. Nice. Yep, he's talked about that in several interviews, and then also, I think, in some of his... You know, he's done several uh, live show hosting things where, like, he, like Michael Bublé presents and it's just, like, him, like, with different celebrities on his guests and he does a bunch of singing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And he's talked about his upbringing and his career and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but that's the only one of those four that I knew. I mean, there was only two well, true ones in there, but still. But you only knew the one of them. That's... I can't believe this. Why does this always happen to me? I'm so sorry. I warned you. <laughs> I purposely didn't do any like reading on Michael Bublé. You know, I just this is stuff I've known over the last decade. But you knew the fourth one. You knew the final ramp. You yeah. knew his grandpa was a pipe pimp, and you screwed me out of a perfect week. <sighs> to be perfectly honest, I don't. If you've been like, "Hey, what did Michael Bublé's grandfather do?" I don't think I could have told you. But when you start telling the story, I remembered the information. I was like, "Oh yes." That's unfortunate. All right, Mixtaper, let's get James back out here so we can talk about this amazing album. Yeah. Okay, next week kicks off season three, year two of Factors. Oh, oh, well, I really shouldn't inform you about this, but next week is my birthday. What? The Mixtaper. The Mixtaper's birthday is... It is the Mixtaper's birthday. Yeah, next week. Yeah. It's definitely the second episode. Yeah, you're right. So... Yeah, so next week, next week's your birthday. Wow. Well, hopefully you'll have some birthday luck next week. I suddenly get the feeling I'll have some birthday something. Uh, <laughs> but we'll have to wait and see what I come up with, and I'm sure James will love it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, happy birthday to you. Uh, yeah. Welcome, James. I'm so, so <laughs> grateful. Thank you for all that. Really locking it down. Extending our lead. Yeah, you really did. 
pretty disappointing <laughs> for the mixtaper. I don't know how this keeps happening. I I really thought those were all pretty good facts that he told. Those were good. I think that's been I think that's been his best attempt against me. To be perfectly honest, I know the score doesn't reflect that, but in terms of the information, he just got he got unlucky that I happened to lean the right way twice. Yeah, I know. It was almost a 50-50 week. Yep. And I, how could I have known? How could he have known? He saw your notes and saw that you started his career in the 2000s. So I bet he thought that picking plumber grandpa was safe, but... Yeah. Unfortunate. You want to talk about the album art? I suppose I do. Let's talk about it. The album art for Crazy Love is Michael Buble with his hands, like, doing the framing thing that, like, you do. Where you put your hands up in front of your face and frame your face. And then there's, yeah, like, you two know how yellow you do? ribbons. I'd say Michael Bublé, Crazy Love. MB. MB, yes. What do you think about it? It's pretty, it, I think it's... What the heck is this? I think it's fitting. What? It's, I don't know, it's something, about the style of music, his specific take on jazz music is like this intense cinemagraphic kind of take on jazz music. And so Ooh. this, like, these like dramatic snapshots of his face, and like some of them are like him kicking and stuff like that. Like, I think that's what's on the deluxe version of the Crazy Love. Uh, Crazy Love Deluxe is like him kicking. So, like, it, it's fitting in, in my head. I don't know. I think the, the yellow stripes look like police tape. Like, caution, do not cross, crime scene. I, I agree. It evokes that. I think... And I think that's fitting, too. I don't think I take this album cover very seriously. Despite all of the subject matter on this album being really hard-hitting and emotional, I just don't think this pose quite lives up to it and then his face has like that smoldering look on it that really fits with like his pruner music style i don't know i like it does it okay well it's here (laughs) (laughs) not starting off great uh in terms of your opinions of this album (laughs) well it's a first impressions thing well speaking of first impressions before we dive into the songs i just want to say off the top First off, no bonus point this week for James's score. No bonus point. Because Michael Buble has a specific style into what he does, right? He he's he actually said in there was this one TV special that I remember watching that he was talking about how he kind of got started and trying to convince the record labels to hire him to sing all of these great classic songs that he chooses to sing, right? And he said he mm-hmm. always got this... I'm kind of paraphrasing the things. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he basically said that he always got all this pushback saying that all the uh, that they, that the record labels would always argue that they had all the recordings of the greats like Sinatra and Fitzgerald performing the songs. So why did they need him? And he said he convinced them by saying something along the lines of, you're right, they were the greats, they popularized the genre and the songs, but unfortunately they are dead now, don't let the genre die with them, oh. was his argument. Like, he wanted to continue the legacy of the songs. So a lot of these songs, as we'll talk about, have were written way back in the early 20th century and have just been performed by every great jazz artist that you could name. You know, and so yes. he wants to he wants to be part of that legacy and continue that tradition on. Uh, just the next torchbearer of these songs you know throughout history mm-hmm. that's a really cool legacy yeah the majority of these songs are those great classic american jazz songs and there are a couple that he wrote and we'll talk about them but up first cry me a river if you insist <laughs> so cry me a river is a popular american torch song written by arthur hamilton way back in 1953 
Free, and first hmm. made popular by Julie London, who was a famous actress and torch song singer in the ni- in 1955. Oh, that didn't take long at all. Uh, Hamilton and London actually went to high school together, and she reached out to him to write the song for her husband Jack Webb's movie, Pete Kelly's Blues. It was to be sung by Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, um, well, I didn't yeah. see Sing it. This, well, the song was dropped from the movie, and then <gasps> Julie London herself later performed it in the 1956 film The Girl Can't Help It, which popularized the song. But Ella mm. Fitzgerald did eventually get to sing her version in, on her 1961 album Clap Hands, Here Comes Charlie. That's the title. Michael Buble has always, always likes to take his songs and give them a more modern jazz flair. So for this song, it's the intense instrumentals, right? Yeah, it is. London and Fitzgerald's versions were always much more softer and sultry and more like a love song, whereas Buble's version takes a much more intense, melodramatic, kind of call-to-arms approach to the song. And what'd you think of it? Well, the big breath start was very ominous and not at all, honestly, what I was expecting, knowing Michael Buble. Yeah. My first note is, am I about to die? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it really gives me action movie vibes. And like I said, as we'll talk about, a lot of these songs have been popularized and used in a lot of classic movies that Buble loves. Well, I mean, remember when I lied about how into Jaws his dad was? <laughs> I, I was like, well, makes sense. But it was a lie. Uh, yeah. The mixtape. And by you, you mean the mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I wasn't quite sure that his voice fit super well with that big intro. Really? Yeah, the staccato orchestration was a bit wild for me because it was like this bizarre, unexpected blend of big band, Wild West, and movie soundtrack for the first verse. And I was like a little, I don't know. I was a little culture shocked by it. No, I think it's perfect because like the instruments build, 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 and then mellow out for his voice to come in with the with the now you say you love me. Uh, it all like mellows out. It definitely got better after the second verse. And I do love how passionate he can get with his voice because mm-hmm. every Michael Buble song is always an emotional ride, mm-hmm. regardless of what it's about or what it does. And this song is a great example of instrumental dynamics, making a song like 10 times better because those instruments go loud, soft, staccato, smooth. Like they're just all over the place in terms of what they're doing stylistically. Oh, yeah. And I love it. I thought it was going to end at that big swell at the three minute mark, but there was uh-huh. still a whole minute left of song. Yeah. It was an interesting. Song. start to the album and uh it shocked me into the world i would say it wasn't like a smooth entry point but it was super it was like very immersive right off the bat this is a song i always wanted to do a version of in band i just wanted to be able to be in the orchestra of like all the brass going bump 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 you know it just it would have been so much fun <laughs> sure but that takes us to all of me All of Me is a popular jazz song written by Gerald Marks and Seymour Simmons in 1931. The song first became popular when performed by Bell Baker over the radio in 1931. Later that year, Paul Whiteman and his orchestra recorded a version that hit the top of the U.S. pop charts, which is weird to think about like an orchestra hitting the top of pop charts. Uh, (laughs) And within weeks of that happening, two more versions would appear. Louis Armstrong's rendition, which hit number one, and then Ben Selvin and his orchestra did a version that hit number 19. The song was also used in the 1932 film Careless Lady, and other popular versions include Billie Holiday's 1941 version, Count Basie's 1943 version, Frank Sinatra's 1948 version, and Willie Nelson's version from his Stardust album. Gotta love Willie Nelson. Boy, some big names there. You know, every great jazz performer plus Willie Nelson. (laughs) Yeah. 
He was really kind of out of left field, I'll be honest, but whatever. They all did a version of it, and now Buble has done his version. Yeah. The song, this song, uh, All of Me, was actually giving the, given the Towering Song Award in the year 2000 by the Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is an award I don't think we've had the pleasure of talking about yet. No. They award specific songs that have kind of just grown outside of maybe their original performance to be a, a culture icon, an American culture icon song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is one of them. Buble's version is, again, a modernized version of the classic that, in my opinion, combines the faster-paced version of Louis Armstrong, the singing style of Frank Sinatra, but yet maintaining the instrumental intensity of Ella Fitzgerald's version. So at this point, I also want to point out this is maybe the most work I've ever done for an episode of Spin It. I listened like it. <laughs> to every version that I could find on Spotify of all the songs. No way. To compare them. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What a year. When, uh, yeah, as I was going through here doing the rundown, I went and listened to like eight different versions of this song and then listened to Buble's version and wrote my notes about it. Wow. Yeah. I like this song. I was sold right from the first three notes. Mm-hmm. The rhythm, the swing feel was just way too good. The brass section, also phenomenal. I mean, this is one of my favorite songs that you've sent my way, like, so far. Really? On the podcast. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, the way that piano yeah. just comes in. Yeah. Oh, look me. It's, just, it's, mm-hmm. so, it's so catchy and light. Well, I, I love the piano, but I kind of wanted more of it, because over time, yeah. you know, he goes zero to 100 on a lot of these songs, and... <laughs> Over time, everything just eclipsed that piano. I really just kind of wanted it more. Now, Georgia On My Mind was one of the tracks I was the most excited about looking at this track list. Because I know I've heard this version before, but it's always so good. Well, before I get into about the song, I sneak preview. Did it at all compare to what you were hyping up to be? How did his version do a good job? Um, yeah, well, it did. It's a nice little peaceful ride through there. And I honestly, I didn't take a ton of musical notes because they'd all just be about how soft and gentle and peaceful and smooth it is. Yeah, you talk about how on most of these songs he goes zero to a hundred. He goes zero to zero. Yeah, he holds back. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he shows some restraint on this song that he doesn't typically show. And I think that's a point towards his musical matureness. Um, but George On My Mind is a 1930s song written by Hoagie Carmichael and Stuart Gorell. Hoagie Carmichael, fun fact, if you've never heard of him, uh, you probably have heard of several of his songs, actually, even if you've never heard of him, because he is considered one of the most successful Tin Pan Alley songwriters. Remember Tin Pan Alley? Tin Pan Alley. It, yeah, I was actually we, in my notes about to talk about Tin Pan Alley later down the yeah. line. Uh, so yeah, Hoagie Carmichael, and this isn't the only song on this album written by Hoagie Carmichael. We'll get to that, too. He's known for songs like George On My Mind, Heart and Soul, and Hint, Hint, Wink, Wink, Stardust, the same Stardust later on this album, and the song that Willie Nelson used and named his Stardust album after. When you said the album was called Stardust, the Willie Nelson one, I wondered if it was named after the yep. same Stardust here. Yep. And I guess it, it is. is. <laughs> Willie Nelson must have been a Michael Buble fan. Well, That's Willie Nelson joke did it because, first. Yeah, that was, the, that was the joke. Anyway, the most well-known version of this song is the version by Ray Charles in 1960. So famous. Absolutely. And, uh, that Ray Charles is, you know, he's a Georgia native, and in 1979... The state of Georgia designated his version as the state's song. And as I just teased, the song has become part of the Great American Songbook, which is a loosely defined collection of 20th century songs that make up American song history. You know, so all yeah. these songs that are just being performed by all these people are kind of loosely part of this songbook. And we'll talk about more of them as we get there. Of course, yeah, Ella Fitzgerald will. also did a version of this song, making her three for three so far this episode. Yeah, 
I suppose so. And to me, Buble's version, like, it starts off like it should be in a spy movie. Like, that opening instrumental line, the bum, 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 bum. Like, it just reminds me of, like, a spy movie. Mm. What do you think of it? You know? Tell, tell me about how it did or didn't live up to your hope. No, I think this was a great pick for him to cover. I, I said whoever had this idea for him to cover this was a genius. Mm-hmm. I do... I like a lot of the musical decisions. Again, it's just not heavy-handed in the slightest, and I love that. And he goes, he's done it on every song, but his kind of upper register that he goes to when he gets really shows off kind of his tenor side of his vocal range, it's just very pretty sounding. Mm -hmm. That's that's an elevener. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Moving on. We we have we have this kind of spin it scale on how much we like songs, right? We either hate it, like it, like like it, or love it, right? We got like like in there. For when you don't want to say you love it. But I think it's time to add a new section to the scale. You can you do you crazy love the next song? I don't. That was a Aww. forced transition. It's pretty it is the title track, which it I have to yell track. if I'm being you, right? Yeah, title yeah. track. Hit it. Crazy Love is a romantic ballad written in nineteen seventy by Van Morrison or his album Moondance. Mm-hmm. There's a very popular version of this song done as a duet with Van Morrison and Ray Charles. Van Morrison and Bob Dylan also did a duet version of this song for the 1991 movie One Irish Rover, and it's been featured in a ton of movies, some of which being She's Having a Baby starring Kevin Bacon and Phenomenon starring uh, John Travolta. I see. This song might have been the biggest disappointment on the album. Really? Yeah. I, uh... First of all, my first note was, I can hear a heartbeat for a thousand miles. I said, that's a loud heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I just don't know how I feel about that walk down on the chorus. Lyrically, the chorus is just there. She gives me love, 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 crazy love. Musically, it's just there. It feels like filler. The really? chorus just feels uninspired. Maybe that's off of just one listen talking. Because for me, I said I had a similar note about how repetitive the chorus is. But for me, when you hear it, the the walk down on it and with the background singers, which the there's background singers on the original version. So I pointed out that it was great that he brought those back for his version as well. Mm-hmm. I felt like each time they said as they walk it down, there's that slightly different kind of inflection on the word love. And yeah. I liked it. It's one of those ones that it's not it's no standout like Cry Me River or the next song Haven't Met You Yet in terms of like what it's doing. But it's. And it's not quite got the soulfulness of Georgia on my mind. I agree. So like of the four we've talked about, it's my least favorite, but it's not my least favorite on the album. Really? No. Interesting. It might be my least favorite on the album. Interesting. I know. I I just felt like I I love the concept as an album title. Crazy Love's a great album title and it fits all these songs, ties them together really well. But I just felt like the song wasn't pulling its weight. It felt light. The key change in the middle was snazzy, and it had a guitar solo, which is kind of mm-hmm. a rarity. Which, yeah, which is a rarity. There's one other yeah. song in here that has a pretty good guitar solo that I pointed out. I don't yeah, know well, one. I, I, aside from that like quiet verse that he throws in at the end of the song, mm-hmm. I just really wasn't too into Crazy Love. Interesting. This is actually the song I'm interested to see if it changes as you listen to it more. Because I agree, it is one that's pretty skippable compared to a lot of the other stuff, but it can easily grow in you. That love, 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 crazy love can easily get stuck in your head if you're not careful, at least for me. That's true. That's true. But yeah, you're right. It is just, maybe it's position on the album because the first three maybe. have been yeah. standout tracks for the whole album. The next one's a standout track for his career. Yeah. And so it's just kind of wedged in between. That was a good transition as we're ever going to organically have. So let's just move on to Haven't Met You Yet. Wow. It was a good transition until you until just I did that. Yeah. Brutally destroyed <laughs> it. Yeah. 
Haven't Met You Yet, ironically, is one of the only songs on this album that I have met. <laughs> but it hasn't met you yet. Maybe it hasn't. Still waiting. You haven't introduced yourself. Don't be rude. Hello. Hello. Haven't met you yet. I'm James. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Haven't Met You Yet is the first song on the album that Buble has writing credits on. And he dedicated the song to his wife, who also stars as the love interest in the music video for the song. Not only that, he wrote this song about her Uh before he met her, which is wild to me. I haven't met you yet. Yeah. (laughs) The song made Canadian history, in fact, as the first song ever to debut at number one on Billboard Canada's adult contemporary chart. Really? No song ever debuted at number one before this? Uh, Nope. Not on the Billboard Canada's adult contemporary chart. Hey, contemporary adults in Canada, what's the deal? What the heck? heck? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's Buble's third single he's written to hit number one after Home and Everything, which to me shows that he does know how to take what he's learning from all these great covers he does and make original music when he wants to. And it's not the last time that he will write a really popular song as well on some of his later ones. True. Very true. I I reached... I'm not done yet, sir. Follow me, horses. I'm letting you continue. (laughs) <laughs> it reached number 24 on the, as I put in my notes, Nilboard Hot 100, because I can't type, uh, oh, <laughs> on the Billboard Hot 100 and won Single of the Year at the Juno Awards and was nominated for Best Male Pop Vocal Performance at the 53rd Grammys Awards. Michael Bubble tops the Nilboard chart. <laughs> Your autocorrect is really struggling. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. I I will continue. Honestly, obviously one of the best Buble songs of all time. It's a musical and lyrical juggernaut right from the first verse. And I love the way that it's structured. Like the pre-chorus just guides you straight into the chorus perfectly. Uh Probably as well as any song we've talked about on the podcast. The musical structure of this one just lends itself to be listened to. Again, it gives you that piano that you want. You said you wanted the piano more heavily uh, on uh, all of me. This one really just smacks you with it right out of the gate with the bum, 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 <laughs> Just really hits you with it. Uh, I am a little bit, so because the song is so great and so, you know, you're gonna awesome. Nitpick it. Don't, I did nitpick it a little bit, I'm realizing as I look at my notes. I'll give so much more than I get. I just haven't met you yet. Feels like a bit of a reach for the rhyme for yet. The concept is good. Giving more in a relationship than you're getting. Even though you haven't met this person, like what a commitment conceptually it's good lyrically mm-hmm. feels like you just tried to find something to fit that yet rhyme borderline buffoonery but not really complaining this song uses a fun technique that we haven't really talked about I mean, maybe other songs have done it and we just didn't point it out but it uses the technique polysyndeton is how i'm going to choose to pronounce that that i don't ever bother yeah. to look up how these things are pronounced ahead of time no you don't part of my charm sure part of my charm oh, yeah <laughs> Uh, polysyndeton is the deliberate insertion of conjunctions into a sentence for the purpose of slowing up the rhythm of the prose. So all of those ands he throws into the chorus, polysyndeton. Yeah, just stretching out that run-on sentence. And I know that you will be so amazing. And baby, your love is going to change me. And now I can see every possibility. Just throwing in all those additional ands is the yeah. use of polysyndeton. And I like it. The trumpet solo, of course. Gotta love yes. that as a trumpet player. I was about to say the trumpet solo at the end was very reminiscent of the Beatles. Very all you need is love. Of course, mm-hmm. that's immediately where my mind went. Yeah, sure. Not to Georgia? No, not to my mind. Georgia was already on my <laughs> mind. Also, one other thing I want to talk about. We talked about how he wrote it about his wife and for his wife and all that. But there's a second interpretation that's kind of popped up through the lyrical, you know, as people have looked at the lyrics that Buble has commented on and said he kind of likes as well. 
And that's the interpretation that this song is about an unborn child. Aww. Being about how you can't wait to meet your unborn child. Specifically the line, I promise you, kid, that I'll give so much more than I get. I just haven't met you yet. Being about how parents give so much to raise their children, you know, and are sometimes goes unappreciated, especially when you're younger and all that. And so it being a song, especially after he then married his wife and had a kid, you know, he's really grown to like that second interpretation. Yeah, well... I mean, that makes sense. And he does, you know, baby, your love is going to change me. He's talking yep. directly to that makes to that a baby. Line a little stupid. Yeah. I baby. Don't, I don't know. What I, I don't like what it does to that line. But otherwise, yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway, great song. Real juggernaut in Buble's career. And it's it, I think it's, again, great that one of his most popular two, like really a lot of his most popular songs are the ones that he has written. I said, like, his song Home, phenomenal. So big that, like I said, other artists then took it and started doing covers of it. It's true. That song then leads us right into All I Do Is Dream Of You, track six. Yeah. Almost halfway. I couldn't tell what I thought about this one. It it is almost halfway. Yeah, I I think it's... uh... The song belongs in the middle of the album, at least, is what I'll say. I agree. I, uh, there were some parts that I wasn't sure about, you know? There was some really good internal rhyme with the dawn, I still go on, and the, uh, you know, a couple more other spots. Were there more than 24 hours in a day, they'd be spent in a sweet content dreaming away. There's there's a couple of really good lyrical moments. I couldn't tell how I felt about that doo-wop chorus in the background. Oh, I love the doo-wop-doo-wop-doo-wop-doo-wop-doo. He has like three styles of songs on this album. He's got it's your true. big orchestral intense songs. He's got your sultry ballads. And then he's got these like light and airy kind of walk through the park songs. And that's where I put this one, you know? The entire yeah. time he's singing, it's just light, airy, almost like he's strolling down, strolling down the sidewalk in a park, just singing. Yeah, and there, I mean, there are other things he throws in too, like the scat part. Yep, yep. Scooby doo boo bop boo boo. I love that. You know, and those are things though that kind of grow on you after you get used to it. I suppose they'd be part of its charm. I agree. Off of one listen that you're not expecting it to come, it uh, it might be a bit jarring. But yeah, when it you was. know it's coming, it's really fun to just get in there. It's just really fun to get in there. Yeah. And then before that big breakdown part, he goes, he gives it an, oh, let's go now. And I hate when that kind of thing feels forced. But this one seems genuine enough. It's it's made up of, see, I keep swinging back and forth. Like, yep, this part was good. This part, I don't know. This part was okay. Yeah, this is a big swing song, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mostly the conclusion I came to is that this song is pleasant, but it's just here. I agree. I can agree. I can agree with the pleasant part, and I think it will become less just here as you give it more listens. But I, I can accept that off of one. Uh, a couple Thank of quick you. facts about it. All I do is dream of you is a 1934 song written by Nasio Brown and Arthur Freed. I did look up how to pronounce that one. It was originally written for the Joan Crawford film Sadie McKee, where it is used in the opening credits and performed by Gene Raymond three separate times in the film. The song three? also features Wait, once, twice wasn't enough. <laughs> Yeah, apparently. Well, technically, four times twelve if you count the opening credits, you know. I guess. Uh, the song also features in the films A Night at the Opera and, most probably famously, Singing in the Rain, performed by Debbie Reynolds. Is it really? Yeah. Wait, I've seen that. I know that. Other popular recordings include Judy Garland in 1940. I don't uh, think she's in Kansas anymore. <laughs> no. Finish Shore with... Glenn Miller, yes, Glenn Miller from the Glenn Miller Band. Pat Boone yeah. in 1956. Dean Martin, 1959. Ella Fitzgerald, she's back, 1968. Welcome back. Buble, like we said, uh, as always, he does a modern take. And his version actually speeds it up and adds more of a jazz flair. 
Uh, it kind of it's originally more of almost like a jazz march in singing in the rain. It's kind of got a bit of a marchy feel to it. That might be why I didn't recognize it. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're ready to move on to the next track, hold track on, se- oh. hold on, oh, hold on. That is indeed track seven. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, hold on is yeah, hold on is track seven. It's another slow boy. Yes, it is the only other song on the album Buble has writing credits on, and it's more of a ballad compared to the jazz tempo of Haven't Met You Yet. Yeah, well, uh, if this is not my least favorite song on the album. Okay. It has elements that are some of my least favorites on the album. Really? Yeah. The piano part in the beginning was kind of boring. Plink. Really? Plink, plink, plink. Yeah, it's just like the entire way through. Everything just felt like it was really heavy-handed on the downbeat. But the, 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 the like movement of the chords. Don't You don't like the movement of the chords on the piano? Like, it's doing more well, than just mo- plinking the well, same okay. note. No, I'm not saying it's... Pl- just the rhythm of it was not doing it for me no note wise it was fine yeah i really like hold on i like the concept you know when life has you down you got someone here to wrap your arms around so hold on it's great and the chorus definitely was better than the verses the verses kind of fell flat for me really i think i think the verses purposely sit lower so that the chorus can swell if the verses went bigger you'd have to swell the choruses more which would then uh take it out of the ballad movement it's kind of really like when they hit that chorus it hits the hold on and he gets to hold it out, and then it like, kind of picks up in terms of intensity just slightly. That's true. I really like it. I like how stripped back it is and raw and emotional. Well, if you want to talk about making it grow, the bridge got sneakily huge. I was just yeah, listening along, and all of a sudden it was, I mean, 0 to 100 again. We kind of took a break from it in the early middle. But really more like 0 to zero to like 75, because like it doesn't go all out. But like it goes yeah. compared to where it... Again, it feels zero to 100 because the verses are so stripped back. But it's not like 100 like some of the other songs have been. True. I really like Hold On. I really like the line at the end of verse two. I've got faith in us and I believe in you and me. The way he sings that line is very pretty. He does like this rise and fall really quickly on the I believe in you and me part. Yeah. And perfectly sets you up for the second course. Sure does. Hold on tight. It's a wild ride. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, don't let that wild ride give you a heartache tonight. Okay. <laughs> my, my first note was, is this the Eagles song? Yes. And then I started so listening and I, and I said, it sure is. And it yep. sure isn't. Yep. My first thing, I, my note on here is you may be wondering heartache tonight, like the Eagles song. Exactly like the Eagles song, but also not. <laughs> Let's not go saying exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Heartache Tonight was originally written and recorded in 1979 by the Eagles. Um, and then in 1983, Conway Twitty did a version of it as well. Buble's version, I think, stays closer to the blues rock style of the Eagles than Conway Twitty's version. But like you said, oh, yeah. he does put a very big adult contemporary jazz inflection on it um, compared to the Eagles. There's no beat, and I, I also wanted to say right off from the top, there's no beating the Eagles version, right? I, no. I'll concede that immediately. There's no beating the Eagles version, but I think Buble gives it about as good a shot as anyone could give. That's fair. It's going to be hard to top Buble's version as well. You know, like Buble's version isn't close to the Eagles, but nobody else is going to come close to Buble, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I definitely, I'm not so sure I like this cover, but obviously, yeah, it does start out behind the eight ball because the original is so good yeah. and. That's just a problem a lot of covers have sometimes, especially on a first listen, when you're very familiar with the song it's covering. This actually is my least favorite song on the album. 
only because I am in love with the Eagles version so much. I just can't get over that hump as Mm. easily as I can with all these other songs. So not that it's bad or anything like that. It's just it it can't live up to what he's covering. It's true. And the upright bass is a nice touch. And it's a really distinct flavor. Yeah. And it, it does grow on you by the time we get to the end of the song. But... I felt like I needed to go listen to the Eagles for a cleanse after finishing this one. (laughs) Well, how do you think I felt who listened to the Eagles and then the Conway Twitty version and then this? True that. Well, it must stink to be the Conway Twitty version because you're nobody till somebody loves you. I guess nobody loves loves the Conway Twitty version. (laughs) At least I don't. Well, you're nobody till Connor loves you, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) You're nobody till somebody loves you is a 1944 classic originally written and recorded by Russ Morgan. The best-known version, though, is Dean Martin's 1964 version. And then other notable versions include Steve Conway, 1946, The Mills Brothers in 1954, Ray Price, 1986, Frank Sinatra performed it live in 1962, Frankie Vaughn in 1967, and most surprisingly and unknown to me, Rick Astley in 2005 on his fifth studio album called Portrait. Sorry, 2005 Rick Astley sang this song? (laughs) He just rickrolled me. Yeah, I did. Get Rick rolled. <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, Blue Blade takes Dean Martin's version and slows it down even more and highlights the piano, in my opinion, in a great way. Yeah, this one was so quiet, so soft. There was almost no tempo or like rhythmic form to it at all at the start. Oh, yeah, it's very freeform jazz at the beginning. Yeah, the muted trumpet was, was nice. I did like uh-huh. that. And it was at this point where I started to feel like, I don't know, just... I don't know how many of those big band hits I can take from this album. It's definitely one of the ingredients in the Michael Buble song recipe book, right? When yeah. I, if you're making a Michael Buble song, you put in a moment where the band just goes, boom, and like hits you. And it's... Uh, I love it every time. Well, sure. I think it's good every time, but it is just... It wears you out. Again, we're listening to it in such high concentration here. Yeah. That's really where its biggest issue is. Borderline overdosing. I, yes. Yeah, that's about right. I can understand that, especially if you're not, if you haven't built up a tolerance like I have, you know. I've got a right. decade's worth of tolerance. True. Very true. I liked it. The ending was great, though. Very suspended, very whimsical. Mm-hmm. I can get behind this song. Good. Uh, what did you think, though, of Baby, You've Got What It Takes, featuring Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings? Well, uh, about the song, not too, too much. I really liked the <laughs> vibe of this one. It's a, I mean, got a good vibe to it. I know. I love the feature. She's got a great oh, voice. Oh, yeah. And uh, um, it's just, that's a great compliment to Michael Bublé's smoother style. Sharon Jones and da- the Dap Kings might be a fun, like, random spin cycle to do. They were very popular in their time, but they've kind of been lost to history slightly. Like, I, you don't hear about them nearly as much in my, as far as I'm aware. Maybe I'm just living under rocks and glass houses again. <laughs> Maybe. But Baby, You've Got What It Takes is a 1950 song written by Clyde Otis. It was originally recorded as just You've Got What It Takes by Brooke Benton's sister, Dorothy Pay, in 1958. Uh, but in 1960, uh, Brooke Benton himself partnered with, uh, going to go with Dina, Dina Washington, to record it as Baby, You've Got What It Takes. Uh, other notable versions include Jerry Lee Lewis and his sister, Linda Gale Lewis, did it as a duet in 1965. And then Van Morrison, he's back. And Linda Gale Lewis did it in 2000. Nice. Rick Astley didn't touch this one. <laughs> no, no. Rick Astley didn't touch this one. Ella Fitzgerald didn't touch this one. The original duet is hard to beat, but I like 
Buble's modern version. Like you said, the feature with Sharon Jones and the Daft Kings, they were a popular American funk and soul band back in the mid 60s and 70s. Yeah, uh, Sharon Jones actually just passed away back in 2016. I know that's not just really anymore. We're in 2022, but not too awfully long I really love the the great turn of phrase in the chorus, you know, the whole idea. It takes something special to knock me off my feet, and you've got what it takes. Like, we don't ever uh-huh. need to know what that is, because you've, you've got it. Like, that's it. Yep. And they give you, it's, they do that reversal thing where they give you all these uh, examples. Yes. You know, it takes, it tells you all the things that you have more than, you know, he's saying it takes more than a Robin to make the winter go, right? But he doesn't say what it does take to make winter go. It's just that you can do it. Yes. Yeah. Very smart. It's great. And also it's just got that fun swing vibe that none of the other songs have really had. That, that, that true, like, swing of the instrumentals. Yeah. It's like a unique style of jazz from his more adult contemporary big version of jazz that he's known for. Right. Sits closer to that 60s, 70s version. Yeah. So that's pretty much like I said. I like the vibe. Don't have too many song notes, but maybe that'll change in the future. But that's all I've got to say at this moment. <laughs> all right. That's a good one. Uh, at this moment was written and recorded by Billy Vera in 1981. The song didn't really become too popular, though, until five years after its release, when it became the love song on in the NBC sitcom Family Ties. Uh, Michael J. Fox's character, Alex Keaton, and his girlfriend, Ellen Reed, played by Tracy Poland, they became kind of their love song for their for their relationship. And then fun fact, oh. uh, Michael J. Fox actually married and is still married to Ellen Reed. Cool. That is a fun fact. That show. Yeah. The song has been covered by Tom Jones, Wayne Newton, and actually Seth MacFarlane on both family guy and in the movie, Ted two. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting addition. <laughs> yeah. Didn't expect that. This one. I like this piano had a very full sound right from the start. The xylophone was a nice touch, a little bit of a, a unique uh, instrument it, thrown into the mix. It's a pretty one. It is. And I like the lyrical structure of this. It's very like free-flowing and almost conversational, the way you'd actually talk instead of being lyrical verses, uh-huh. right? What did you think I would say at this moment when I'm faced with the knowledge that you just don't love me? That's not a lyric. That's just a, that's just a sentence. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that change. It's a good change of pace. Oh, but there was a moment here. Where did it happen? Oh, yeah. Was it at this moment? It was at this moment. There was a moment in the song that they just, there was just a second voice out of nowhere. You know, they just decided to double up for no reason and to great detriment. I really did really? not like that. I'm trying to think where and that I is. Did not like that. Where about in the song was that? Mid late. Yeah, it's like right around 250, right? Kiss the ground that you walk on, baby. Not a fan of that. Yeah, it was just I out mean, of nowhere. It is Bad out call. of nowhere. I will give you. But Bad I'm, call. Bad call. Yeah. Take it or leave it. I don't really care. Leave it. Leave it. I care. Leave it. I'll I'll allow it to be left. But (laughs) that brings us to the long-waited-for Stardust that we've mentioned several times so far throughout this album. Yes, we have. Stardust is a jazz song written by Hoagie Carmichael and is now considered a standard in the Great American Songbook. Like, it's one of the songs in the Great American Songbook. It has been recorded over 1,500 times as both instrumental and vocal tracks. It's been covered by literally almost every major jazz performer you could think of, including Frank Sinatra, Artie Shaw, Ella Fitzgerald's Back Again, Glenn Miller, Nat King Cole, and the legend Willie Nelson, as mentioned earlier. But also, this would be a fun one for you if you didn't know this, James. Ringo Starr. Oh, that's <laughs> Ringo fun. Starr has done a version of this. That's actually genius. Love the star pun. Uh-huh. The song was featured in the films Goodfellas, Sleepless in Seattle, and Casino, to name a few. 
It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1995 and added to the National Recording Registry in 2004. That's another mm. song that we've talked about that make it into there. It's true. Buble puts a bit of an acapella spin on the song with vocal group Naturally Seven. A bit. Who are an acapella group with a distinct sound that they call vocal play, which they say is the art of becoming an instrument using the human voice to create the sound. That would be acapella. Uh, all of their stuff is just them like doing basically instrumental tracks, but only using their voices. I see. Um, is kind of their shtick. In fact, I actually saw Naturally Seven because they toured with Buble in 2014. That's cool. I liked I liked the Naturally Seven. I uh I did I said in my notes that doo-wop, I said they're nailing this. The Naturally mm-hmm. Seven nailed this. And I love the simplicity of this song, mostly just being bass and vocals like it is. That's very nice. Yeah. And that careful touch of drums is just the icing on top. I just think doing an acapella version of it is kind of really clever, right? Because as I said, it's been recorded 1,500 times as an instrumental and as a vocal track. So then to kind of do it as a vocals track without instrumentals is kind of like clever. You know, minimal instrumentals. There is some. But, you know, to yeah. use vocals adds to the instruments as much as possible. It's true. And we do bring back the clarinet solo on here. Yeah. That's one I think we haven't seen since Randy Travis, but maybe Barry Manilow. I can't quite remember. I just know Randy had one. My favorite version of Stardust is still Frank Sinatra's. That's where I first was introduced to the song. My favorite would probably be Willie Nelson's, but I haven't heard any others yet, so. That brings us to the album Closer. Yes, it does. Whatever it takes. Yep, I I put in my notes. Let's see how it goes. Album Closer. It's got a little more pressure on it than the standard, you know, track. The opening track, the closing track, and the title track always have the most pressure. It's true. Usually. Whatever It Takes is a song written by Canadian singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith, who also features on this. So the guy who's featuring on it is also the guy who wrote the song. It was very cool that he got to feature on this cover. He wrote it in 2004. I think it's a great album closer. I agree. It's got a good feel to it. It's a very appropriate capstone to the album and the journey that we've just been on. The chorus is a catchy beat, and it's got like this perfect tempo to kind of bring, like you said, this roller coaster of zero to a hundreds to a close. Mm-hmm. And it's got a nice, gentle little guitar part. I love that. The harmony on this one is really, really good. Yeah. Unlike the other surprise harmony that just <laughs> popped up in at this moment. This one actually was integrated well. Well, is it time we final spin? I suppose it's time we final spin. Are we doing the final spin thing where I do it your way and then... I think we've officially determined that doesn't work. Right. And so I think we just jump right to the tried and true method with your score. <laughs> right. Well, I actually, I kind of want to save my score for the end. Actually, no, I, you know, I am so, yeah, we're going to do you last, actually. I know I said try and true method, but we're going to do the normal method, but flipped, because I want to hear, right. I want the big reveal of whether or not I succeeded in my goal. Yes. So, for me, he's just, he's always had this appeal to me that is something that maybe a lot of people don't like about him. You know, a lot of people will, you know, hate him because he doesn't write his own music and he just covers other people's songs, as they'll put it. But to have your aim to be part of this legacy that exists for these songs you know to like like he, he his goal is above just fame and popularity and original songs right he wants to be part of something that's existed since the beginning of the 20th century and he wants mm. to put, bring these songs that unless you're a fan of frank sinatra's or the ella fitzgerald's you know you're not going to ever hear anymore and he wants to present them to the new young audience in a modern way my top three get my carnival mention back this week thankfully you sure do in album order Cry Me a River, Haven't Met You Yet, 
hold on and honorable mention whatever it takes with Ron Sexman. Boy, we really, yeah, we disagreed on some of those. Well, I mean, like I said, hold on had parts that I liked and didn't like. Crimea River was not. You don't know how tempted. If it wasn't for you already set the schedule for the beginning of year two and I got to hold on to my honorable mentions <laughs> you don't know how tempted i was to also take things like georgia on my mind and stuff like that but just gonna take all 13 i would take uh, not all 13 i probably would take at least nine of them oh my gosh i also made a top three because i wasn't sure fair enough yeah i wanted to be thorough here my top three in actual ranked order because i've done that we'll start with the jamesable mention goes to all of me track two okay Yep, I like that one a lot. It was it was a strong second track. It's it's a good one. My third pick is whatever it takes. Okay, Agreed great there. album closer. Number two, Georgia on my mind. Yep, all right, awesome. Number one, haven't met you yet. Shouldn't be a surprise. Yep, yep. If I could pick both songs on the playlist, I'd take Haven't Met You Yet and Georgia on my mind. It really sounds like we should take Haven't Met You Yet and whatever it takes because we both of those were in our top mm. fours. You're right. I could be I could be okay with that. Yeah. I think we take Haven't Met You Yet and Whatever It Takes featuring Ron Sexsmith. There we go. So a surprising second pick with some of those legendary ones on there, but it's, you know, how it worked out with what we could agree on. I suppose so. All right. Uh, in terms of my score... Four, five. I think it's no surprise. This one is getting nine bubbly nil boards out of ten. <laughs> bubbly nil boards. Great. <laughs> yeah, autocorrect. Let you down, but this album did not. <laughs> no, no, it did not. I think this sits right under Thriller by Michael Jackson. Oh, wow. Yeah. Can't beat it. Can't beat it. Unless you're nine spooky, unexplained, mysterious animal disappearances. Unless you're beat it. <laughs> what about you, though? This is what I'm, this is what the entire episode's been about right here. What did you think? What I will tell you is I did not... I scored everything before I calculated the overall average, just to make sure I wasn't playing favorites or unfavorites sure. or anything. Or unfavorites. What? I just, I just, you know, I just want to remind you that 89.3 would break 100. And the last Michael Buble album I've ranked was number 490. Oh, gosh. Musically, jazzy for sure. Some really big melodies that actually get to have big moments without sacrificing the softer side. So I don't think I felt particularly bored with any parts of this album. It's pretty much in its musical element the whole way through. Music is an 88 from me. All right, a little low for what I need, but it's close. It is. Lyrics, I think a lot of these songs end up lyrically pretty light at one point or another, whether it's in the verse or the chorus. A lot of these songs trade between them. Others, though, right, like Georgia On My Mind, Haven't Met You Yet, Hold On, Baby You've Got What It Takes, they do some really clever lyrical things. I think they're really strong lyrically. It's hard not to see some of these songs as a product of their time. A song that's written in the 30s is just lyrically going to be very different to hear and digest than a song written by Michael Bublé in 2008, right? I think it averages out to an 86 for lyrics. Instruments of production? Heck yeah. Uh, while, while again, we do get a little bit of an overdose of the big band sound here, it is great. And with, with very few exceptions, like I think they nail the highs and the lows of this album. Instruments and production, 
92. And the vibe, this one does not exactly have high re-listenability for me. Some of these faster tracks definitely would make my regular playlists, right? But I think I'd have to be in a pretty particular and slightly rare mood to go for some of the others. That said, though, remarkably consistent and remarkably captivating album. I think it shows off every side of what Michael Buble does best. I love this effort, you know, this preservation effort that you talked about. That's really cool. These are all classics. And... There's a reason for that, and it shows Vibes getting a 90. Yep, we didn't quite hit it. Well, we didn't quite hit it. If you were, you know, apparently keeping track in your head, that's true. The overall score is actually the first time I've ever given this score in 530-some albums. It's an 88.2. Dang. Which makes it 129 overall. 129? I was so close. But 29. Here's what screwed you a little bit. It's the bonus point, right? It's if I the, got bonus the bonus point. point if it got that bonus point, it would be number 101. Oh, so I still wanted to make it. just barely missed the mark. Just barely. So close. I knew I had an uphill battle already knowing he wasn't getting that bonus point. Yeah, that's hard. I thought maybe some of these classics would get just slightly higher scores. That's true. What I will say is this is definitely, by a good stretch, the best album you've brought me. I'm getting better with each one. <laughs> You're getting closer. Barry Manilow, even now, was number 201. So this one, very close. Very close. But it gives this gives you something to strive towards in year two. I'm happy with my choice. It didn't quite get where I want to be, which means I now will be uh, raging all of year two, and it's all your fault. There's no need to rage. You were literally a bonus point and a tenth of a point behind. It was not that far. Time to rage. Uh, year two is going to... I'm going to go wild, audience. I'm going to pick some real off-the-wall stuff from my next Connor Picks. It's going to wow. be the year of crazy. In in uh to avenge crazy love. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Make sense. I've given it such a <laughs> it's a good score. Number 129 is It's a good score. I'm I'm happy. I'm glad you it's the best score so far out of my three picks, but it didn't hit where I needed it to hit, so it will be avenged. And with all right, that, all right, all right. I suppose we should tell you. I'm sorry. I, oof, I lost myself for a second there. I just went into it. Yeah, just... Check yourself. All right. As James was trying to say, it's time to bring the end of the episode and the end of year one to a close. Again, thank you all for listening wherever you jumped in. If you've been here since day one or day zero, I guess. That's awesome. Appreciate you. If you've been here, this is your first episode. Appreciate you, too. That's awesome, too. Yeah, welcome. You got here at the perfect time. We're moving into year two. Going to be bigger, better. Yeah, spend it year two, electric boogaloo. Uh, <laughs> but where can you find year two? And where can you find us? Well, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. We've got website, www.spinitpod.com. We got Instagram, which is which is spinitpod at spinitpod. No. No, no, Instagram. That's, no, that's so, so, so that's Twitter. So yeah, okay. I can never remember which way, way you go. Okay, we, we got a Twitter. That's uh, at spin it, spin it pod. It's just at spin it pod, not at spin it, spin it pod. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Yeah. At spin it pod. We got Instagram, which is at spin it pod official. Nailed it. Yeah, nailed it. And uh, keep spinning into year two. Yeah, keep spinning. We'll see you next year, and that means next week. Yeah. We got something real fun coming your way. We're kicking off year two with some exciting new developments in the Spin It Pod world. Yeah. Have you ever tried the bubbly? No, I haven't. Me neither. I should get some. It's probably not good. I'm not a big sparkling water. I, I could get into it. 